right. Um, we welcome again Dr. Leo Purser this morning uh, to speak in our pastor's absence. And uh, you will see a brief uh, bio sketch of Dr. Purser in your bulletin, and I will not read that except to say that he is from Liberty University. And um, we are grateful that he is here today. Dr. Purser, come and preach for us, and we uh, thank you for being here with us. God bless you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let's give him a hand. You might want to save that till later, uh, <laughs> after you've heard the sermon, although I appreciate the applause beforehand. It makes me feel like I'm right at home. Um, I, I'm an old country boy from uh, Tennessee. You may not believe that by looking at me. Um, I have grown up a bit and grown out as well. Uh, <clears throat> when Jeff asked me, actually Jeff asked me, Pastor Jeff asked me a few months back if I could do this for him. And originally I'd said no. And it's not because I have anything against Rocky Mount. Uh, I didn't know where you were, so I couldn't have anything against you. But it's because I, I had a wedding planned at the time. Um, I teach uh, graduate students and professional students at Thomas Road Baptist Church. By the way, Pastor Jonathan Falwell says hello, uh, sends the greetings of Thomas Road to your church. Um, and I, I teach this Sunday school class. And we always, uh, for some reason, when you get singles together in a, in a room, they match up. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that before, but it happens. Uh, probably some of you have a story or testimony to that effect. And we had a wedding plan, and so I told him no, and uh, he was insistent. So I finally said yes. Uh, fortunately, the couple that was going to get married this weekend got married at a different date. So no, I'm not skipping the wedding to be here, although if that makes you feel more important, I'm skipping the wedding to be here. Uh, <clears throat> I want to talk to you today. I am more of a teacher than a preacher. You can read about me there in the bulletin. Um, I didn't know Jeff was going to pull my bio right off my blog, um, but that's okay because it's there and you can see it if you want to go see it. I I am just a a simple guy. Please don't call me doctor. I earned the degree. I have a piece of paper hanging on my wall, but I'm Leo. And I am a guy who has learned some things about God that he likes to share with other people. As I was driving in today, it's about an hour drive, a little over an hour, to get from my house uh, there in in the Lynchburg area to uh, your lovely church. As I drove in, I listened to the music of a man named Dennis Jernigan. If you don't know this man, you need to look him up online. Dennis Jernigan is a man who writes praise music, uh, Christian music. And uh, Dennis is a former homosexual who, uh, by God's grace, has been not only delivered from that lifestyle, but now writes music in praise and honor of what God has accomplished in his life. And Dennis writes some amazing lyrics. And as I was driving in, I I had the most amazing time of worship coming into this place. And it was just, God just overwhelmed me. And in fact, I found myself literally in tears driving, which is never a good thing, by the way, uh, especially if you drive like me. Uh, But in tears, praising God for the good things he's done for me. And I I had a moment of worship before I even showed up for this moment of worship. And the topic I chose for today, ironically enough, given the the music, uh, the special music today, and and given my experience driving in, is what does worship smell like? I know you're probably not used to this. See, the young people are going to get this right away. The older folks are going, what's he talking about? It'll all become clear in a moment, I promise, okay? I'm a teacher by nature, not a pastor, not a preacher. So um, I'm a little more, um, a little unorthodox compared to what you might be used with Pastor Jeff. So just be aware of that. I move a lot. Um, I will not come down there and, and wake you up if you fall asleep, though, so don't panic. All right? If you, if, if you sleep in church, it's okay with me. Just don't snore louder than my mic. Okay? Is it a deal? Are all, okay, I'll just say, are you alive? Okay. Do you, does Jeff let you talk in church? If he doesn't, we need to talk to Jeff. He's in my Ph.D. program. I think we can fix that. Um, 
because <laughs> I, I like it when you talk back. It makes me realize you're still breathing and you're still there. Um, I'm getting old, so I have to wear reading glasses to read my own notes. It's really sad, isn't it? Makes me look more intelligent, though. I always tell people, now I look like a professor. Now I don't. Uh, yeah, now I look like a, you know, somebody from the Andy Griffith show. Anyway, moving on. Most of us can relate to smell on some sort, right? I mean, all of us were raised probably in homes where um, mom and dad cooked on occasion, right? Thanksgiving meal, anybody here? What do you like most about Thanksgiving? Come on, somebody, somebody just tell me what you like about Thanksgiving. Go ahead, sir. Turkey. Nothing better than the smell of a turkey in the oven while you're watching football on TV. Right? Stuffing. Go, go, keep going, brother. You got it. <laughs> Amen. What else? Anybody else? The pie? What kind of pie? Pumpkin pie. My son would rise up and call you blessed. I have an 11-year-old boy that not only loves to eat pumpkin pie, but loves to make them. Nothing better than a pie. My wife made banana bread last night for our Sunday school class, and that banana bread smell just permeated the house. Our kitchen is right off the living room where we were watching TV together, and that, the smell just permeated the house. Um, when I was a kid growing up, my dad was not a, a, a heavy smoker, but whenever we traveled, dad would smoke a cigar to keep himself awake, I'm assuming. I don't know. I, he never gave me a rationale for it. I just remember we'd leave like at 3 in the morning. Any of y'all had a dad like that? We're going on vacation, so we all have to get up in our pajamas and leave. I never understood why. Like, were the Huns coming? You know, we're being attacked? I don't know. But 3 in the morning, we'd be in the Corvair. Anybody here remember the Corvairs? Yeah, it's not the Corvette, so don't get excited. <laughs> it's the one Ralph Nader said would kill you. Um, we'd all pile into this little car at 3 in the morning, and all I could remember is the, is the, is the glow of my dad's cigar and the smell of that, that sweet smell of that cigar. And, I can, and every time I have these smells, if, I'm, if I walk into a, a, you know, a restaurant and they're cooking turkey, or if I walk in somewhere and they're, they're, they're baking a pie, Right? It takes me back to these experiences of my youth. It takes me back to those days when I was a kid and, I, and, I, and these smells permeated our life. What, we all have smells that we associate with memories. I was talking to one of my colleagues, Chet Roden. He's an Old Testament prof at Liberty. And uh, Chet and I are big football fans. You couldn't tell by looking at us that we played football. Uh, we're both, he's shaped like me, so in case you're wondering. Uh, we'd make a great defensive line by ourselves um, if we could move. But the point is, <laughs> we love football. He's an Alabama fan. Don't hold that against him. Um, if you're an Alabama fan, don't hold that against me. Okay? Saying. We were talking about football the other day. He said in August, when he smells fresh-cut grass, the first thing he thinks about is two-a-days and practicing, and high school football, and college football. And, and I have to agree with him. I mowed my yard yesterday, and as I mowed the yard, I, I had this uh, insane desire to go hit somebody, uh, you know, <laughs> tackle something. I don't know why. Uh, 51 years old, you think you'd get over that after a while. It doesn't seem to happen. My point is simply this. We all associate smell with something in our lives. We all have a smell that we connect to. And when we smell that thing, it immediately connects us to that memory. And worship is a lot like that. Our passage today, we're going to look at John, if you're wondering, we're going to look at John chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, you're going to want to get out and open to John 12. Our passage today in John chapter 12 gives us an indication that worship has a smell, that there is a smell to worship. So I want to ask the question today, you're going to hear me say this over and over again, what does your worship smell like? Let me, let me read to you my passage for today. Then I'm going to break this down for you and take it apart in little pieces. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Y'all might remember that story, right? Man was in the grave. Jesus walked up, called his name. He got out of the grave. Everybody was amazed. And immediately the Pharisees wanted to kill him. I don't know about you, but that always amazed me. The man just got up out of the grave, and you want to kill him? <laughs> What's going to stop Jesus from doing it again? 
All right? I mean, Pharisees weren't the brightest guys. Let's just be honest. All right, so he'd raised, Jesus had raised him from the dead. Sorry, side sermon there. there. There they made him a supper. Martha served, as usual, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what he wanted. Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her, let her keep this for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When a great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came, not only to on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the dead man come to life, right? Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's talk about this dinner at Bethany for a moment. In uh, the Gospel of Matthew, I believe it is, or maybe Luke. Don't hold me to that. I have to look it up. Uh, the story is told that this, this, this supper is held at the, the house of a certain Simon the leper. Now, what you need to know about Simon the leper is that he's no longer a leper, because if he was, obviously you wouldn't want to go eat at his house, because Lord knows what you might find in the mashed potatoes. Um, just saying. For those of you who aren't awake, that was a joke. Um, those of you who got that, if you didn't see me later, I'll explain it. Uh, but Simon the leper is hosting this party. Now, think about the dinner table guests you have here. I don't know about you, but my, when my family gets together, my extended family, be it the Pursers on my dad's side or the Pharisees on my mom's side, first liar doesn't stand a chance. Uh, so, you know, if you tell a story, somebody's going to one-up it and one-up it and one-up it and one-up it until you have people, you know, fighting. Martians on Venus somewhere, and uh, you know, and I swear it was the truth. I was there when it happened. Uh, you know, that's y- y'all get those. Y'all have that family members. Is this thing on? Okay. Well, anyway, we're going to go on anyway, um, whether it is or not. Just imagine this story, though. Imagine you're sitting at the table. There's Lazarus. There's Simon. There's Jesus. Right. And Simon says, "I once was falling apart, literally, but Jesus made me whole." And Lazarus says, yeah, I can beat that. I once was in the hole. And now I'm alive. You have Lazarus, you have Simon, you have Jesus. Probably the disciples around the table. We know Judas is there at least. The story tells us Judas remarks about Mary. So there's probably the other, 12, other 11 disciples are there. You have Mary and Martha there. You have a, a host of people. And apparently, from the best I can tell, they're celebrating Lazarus' resurrection. This is why they're having the party. And in the middle of this dinner, all the turkey's being cooked, right? The stuffing, the pumpkin pie, the, the, the rolls are in the oven, and the house is permeated by the smell of this good food. All of a sudden, Mary walks out of her room carrying a big vial of stuff. And everybody knows what's in this vial because these vials only carry one thing, pure nard. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a country boy. When I hear nard, I think a lard, and I think you wouldn't want to put that on anybody unless you're trying to get them out of a hole of some sort, maybe. I don't know. But that's not what this is. This is, this is the most expensive perfume you can buy in the first century world. It cost one year's salary to buy a jar of it. All right? I don't know about you, but one year's salary seems like a lot of money to me for perfume. But the reason people would buy this perfume is to anoint a person for burial. Now, what they wouldn't normally anoint someone for burial before they died. 
because then if they didn't die, he just wasted a year's worth of salary of Purinard, right? So they got, got it. Somebody on the front row got that. I appreciate that. Um, they would wait till they were dead to use this. So Mary had this nard. She may have had it for Lazarus. Because they would often go and anoint the bodies several days after their death so as to keep the smell. from. Because in the old days, in the Middle East, they bury people in caves. They didn't have embalming practices. They didn't have, you know, didn't have ways. So you, you, could, you didn't go around the graveyard because it smelled like a graveyard. Okay? So they would go anoint the bodies so it wouldn't smell so bad. So it may have been that she was saving this for Lazarus, but then Lazarus got up out of the grave before she got to use it. So she had it left over. Okay? So she walks out of the house with this perfume. She walks into the living room or the dining room. All the guys are sitting at the table. And then basically when they set a table, they laid down. So you've got to understand they're, they're kind of reclining on the floor. They may be laying on one elbow and eating like this. That's how they did it in the old days. And so they're laying there and, and Mary walks over. She cracks open this vial. Once you crack it open, you can't uncrack it. And it's one of those things. It just stuff starts pouring everywhere. And she dumps this sweet smelling stuff all over Jesus' feet. In the, in the synoptics and the other gospels, it talks about her anointing Jesus' head and the rest of his body as well. I want you to get the scene. In the middle of the dinner, she interrupts everything to bring out a jar of perfume. To enact a funeral procession. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing could kill a Thanksgiving meal quicker. <laughs> right? Than <laughs> somebody preparing someone else for burial. But I, I want you to see here that the reactions to this act show us three kinds of worship. So if you're taking notes, I want you to get this. The three kinds of worship that are obvious in this passage are, one, an act of extravagant worship, two, an act of egocentric worship, and then three, an act of the observers who aren't worshiping at all. Now we're going to take these in reverse order because I want to save the extravagant worship for last because I think it's important. But let's, let's consider this, the observers. In John 12, 9, it says this, When a great crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, they came not for Jesus only, but also to see Lazarus, right? They, somebody put a bouncy house out in the front yard, and they were playing music, and they were singing and dancing. And so they said, hey, there's something going on over at the Lazarus household. Let's go see what's going on. And who knows, maybe they'll kill Lazarus again, and Jesus will resurrect him, and we'll get on a miracle. Okay? So the, these are the people that came not to learn. They came not to serve, but they came to gawk. They came to watch. They came to see if something big was going to happen. My hometown is Millington, Tennessee. It's a small town due north of Memphis, about 15 miles north. We used to have the fame of having the largest inland naval base in the world there until uh, Bill Clinton closed it down. Uh, God bless him. But uh, my hometown is not known for much, to be quite honest with you. We're not known for a whole lot. But we have a church there who will remain nameless because I don't mean to offend anyone. And one time the pastor of that church decided he wanted to attract a crowd. So he invited a famous wrestler that happened to be a Christian to come to his church to speak. But not only did he invite him to speak, but they set up a wrestling ring. And the pastor said, I'm going to get in a ring with this wrestler. We're going to have a wrestling match. Brings a whole new light to Ephesians 6, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> which one was playing the role of the devil? Um, I know you all vote for the pastor. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just kidding. Jeff, if you hear that, I'm joking. We're not talking about you. Enjoy Brazil. Uh, the fact is, this guy was putting on a show for what purpose? Well, he would argue he wanted to attract a crowd so he could share Jesus with them. But you know what? I, I can tell you. If you want, to know how to multi- you want to know how to grow this church, I can tell you how to grow this church. Start giving people $20 if they come. Right? Wouldn't you come back if they gave you 20 bucks? Of course you would. Right? And every, every week, give them 20 bucks. The only problem is, when you run out of money, guess what? 
You run out of people. Because the folks are only coming to get something, to gain something, to get in on something. They're not coming to serve. They're not coming to learn. These are the observers. Let's go see if Lazarus is still there. Let's go see if he's still alive or dead. Let's just check up on Lazarus because this ought to be fun. They came for rubbernecking. Don't you hate those people on the road, right? An accident happens. Speed limit's 55 or 60. Accident happens, all of a sudden speed limit's 25 because some idiot's got to go pull over and go look. How hard is that? Right? I mean, I'm just saying, speaking out loud. Right? If I'm that interested in a wreck, I'm going to stop my car. I'm going to get out. I'm going to go over there and go, ooh, that looks like it could hurt. Right? Just saying. But you know the rubberneckers. We have rubberneckers in the church. They show up because they want to show up. They show up because some, something exciting might happen. Let's go just in case. They're more concerned about the next big event rather than truly meeting with God or serving others. They don't want to miss out on something that may be worth gossiping about later. Right? I saw Lazarus. I touched him. He's really alive. Can you believe it? I'm not sure he's really dead ever. I think they made that up. I don't think, I think they just put him in a hole just in case. And then Jesus came along and took him out of a hole and made it look like a resurrection. Right? You, ever, you don't have those people at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, do you? Not at all, no. The observer worship, the people who come just for the sights and sounds, I'm going to tell you, for those of you young people, you're going to appreciate this. Now, by the way, I'm going to warn you, you know what this means, right? Absolutely nothing. Um, when a preacher does that, it means he's not going to pay attention to it there either. I'm just telling you the truth. And by the way, Jeff told me I'll usually go till 1. So, um, and then somebody else told me I get shot if I'm not done at 12. So I would like to do an arms check right quick. Anybody packing? Uh, I'm just joking. Please don't shoot me. I'm a visitor. Be nice. Observer worship smells a lot like burnt eggs. You ever burn eggs? My son, bless his heart, loves to cook. And so one day he went to bless his daddy. I love fried eggs. So dad, uh, Hudson decided to fry some eggs. Only he forgot that you had to have something in the pan, like a grease of some sort, <laughs> to cook them. And so he just cracked open these eggs, put them in the pan. Next thing you know, you know the, the stove's on fire, right? And the house smelled like burnt eggs for about a month, right? You can't get that smell. No matter how hard you try, burnt eggs stays around. Observer worship smells like burnt eggs. So what does your worship smell like? Do you come on Sundays just for the adventure, just for the next guest speaker, just for the next big event? Do you come in for the exciting stuff that might happen, might not happen? Come for the spectacle? That's observer worship. Doesn't smell good. Second type of worship I call egocentric worship. I want us to look at Judas and the chief priests. Judas says in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he handled the money box. And he used to take what was put into it. Then we have the, uh, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, verses 10 and 11. The chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Egocentric worship sounds very pious on the surface. Look at Judas, right? What? We have all these poor people in Jerusalem. Bethany is full of poor people. Why didn't we sell this, this expensive perfume for 300 denarii, a year's worth of salary, and give that money to the poor? That sounds pretty honest. Sounds like a man is thinking about other people. But you have to remember John describes Judas' motives. He didn't care about the poor. 
He cared about Judas. He was in it for what Judas could get out of it. Are we like that? Do we ever worship God for what we can get out of it? One of my favorite scenes in the Bible is the book of Job, Job chapter 1. Job's not my favorite book, but I have a title for a book if I ever write one on Job. It's going to be entitled, You Ain't God, So Don't Try. Uh, Because Job, the whole story is about God, not about Job. Job's a bit player in the story, even though it's named for him. But you know the story. God's in heaven, and he has a meeting with all his heavenly counselors. All the angels of heaven, and apparently even the devils of heaven, come together because Satan shows up. And God says to Satan, hey, how you doing, man? What's you up to? Oh, I've been wandering around the earth down there since you kicked me out. I didn't have much choice, (laughs) you know. And God says to him, have you happened to pay any attention to my man Job? Perfect. Righteous. Godly man. I like Job, God says. And Satan says, yeah, yeah, I see that. But you know what? If you were to take your hand of protection off of him, he wouldn't serve you anymore. Will a man serve God for nothing, Satan says? And God says to him, well, let's find out. I give you permission. To attack Job. And he does. And you may remember Job's response. Naked I came into the womb, out of the womb. Naked I will go to the grave. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A truly righteous man was Job. Truly righteous. Satan got his answer. Will a man serve God for nothing? Job said, yeah. Take it all. Take it all. The love of God, the love of Christ is superior than anything else I have. Paul puts it like this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is listing all his credentials, which you know, he had, had a bunch of them. Born on the, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, right? trained by Gamaliel, a Pharisee, the Pharisees. Had the degrees, he had the, 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 the background, he had the experience, he had the knowledge. As regarding zeal, he persecuted the church. And he says these words. I love these words from Paul because it always makes me think, where am I in my life? Paul says this, according to the righteousness that comes from the law, I was blameless. Wow, blameless, Paul. Man, what a, what a claim to make. Blameless. Blameless. Then he says these words. But I count it all as manure compared to knowing Christ and his righteousness. Everything Job, everything Paul had accomplished in their lives in comparison to Christ was nothing. These were not egocentric men. These were God-centric men. Men who were focused on the things that mattered. Egocentric worship seems concerned about legitimate issues. But its real focus is on how can I latch onto these legitimate issues to get my name known. Egocentric worship is more interested in producing observation of self than observation of God. Egocentric worship says, pay attention to me. Here's my favorite line in Baptist churches. I get this in my Sunday school class all the time at Thomas Road. I quit going to that other church. Are you ready for this? Because they weren't meeting my needs. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to issue a challenge to you. Uh, nobody's taking me up on this yet, so maybe you will. Show me anywhere in this Bible where it says that serving God is about getting my needs met. What more could he provide for you? Do you know the gospel story? If I can get anything through our minds, through our hearts today, I hope this is it. God, in his infinite wisdom, created humans because he wanted fellowship with someone who freely chose to love him back. 
Okay? He did not predetermine the outcome. He did not predetermine the issues. He created people to love him as he loved. Free moral choice. And he created this universe, and he put Adam and Eve in it. And he said to Adam and Eve, all the things I've given to you are yours, everything. That tree over there, that's mine. Don't touch it. Now, those of you who are parents, you know exactly what happens when you tell your kids, that's daddy's soda. Don't touch it. What's the first thing they're going to go for? You're going to have a 24-pack over here. But there's something special about daddy's soda. Right? We, know what, we know the story. Adam and Eve went over there. Eve is standing there, serpent comes up and says, wow, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? It looks kind of tasty. Well, look, we're not even supposed to look at it. We're not supposed to touch it. That's not what God said. God said, leave it alone. He didn't say you couldn't look at it. Okay? So Adam and Eve fell because they wanted, egocentric, to be God. Yeah, God shouldn't hold stuff out from us. He put that tree in our garden. We ought to have every right to eat from that tree. That's my tree just as much as it is God's tree. Give me a bite. Egocentric. So what did God do? God saw what Adam and Eve did. He saw the heart of every human man and said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to call Abraham. I'm going to call Jacob. I'm going to call Moses. I'm going to call David. And every one of them, every one of them, every one of them, Noah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, every one of them is going to fail to let me be God. So here's what I'm going to do. Knowing that the human problem is sin, and the human problem is that we continually choose to do the opposite of what God wants us to do, God said this, I will humble myself, Philippians 2. I will humble myself and take on the form of a man. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, became in likeness as a man. He humbled himself in obedience even to the point of death. Humility of God. The humility of God to me is the most amazing thing. Because if I was God, I wouldn't be humble. I'm just going to be honest. This is why I'm egocentric. This is where I camp. This is where I live. Because if I was God, you know what I'd do? There'd be a whole lot of dead Taliban. There'd be a whole lot of dead Bin Ladens. There'd be a whole lot of dead Republicans and Democrats, too. I'm just telling you. I'm not picking sides here. There'd be a lot of dead Americans. There'd be a lot of dead people. In fact, I might be alone if I was God. Right? I'm just being honest. Because I know what egocentric looks like. Egocentric means I'm the best. I'm the most important. Pay attention to me. God's not like that. God came down. Do you know what Jesus does in John chapter 13? Do you know what Jesus does in John 13? They're having a party. Mary's going to anoint Jesus' feet. And in John chapter 13, he takes his 12 disciples into an upper room. And they have a meal. And he says to them, sit still. And he goes over and he gets a bowl of water. And he takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around his waist. And he starts washing those stinky tax-collecting fishermen feet. They've been walking around the sewage. God knows what else they've been walking around. And Jesus gets on his hands and knees. And he washes their feet. And Peter says, no, Jesus... This is humiliating. You shouldn't do this. You're Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you're not in. You're not part of me. And Jesus says these words to the disciples. What I have done for you is an example. Do to one another. What does he mean? Should we get a bucket of water today and wash each other's feet? You can if you want to. Fine. No, I think the bigger message is this. I'm God of the universe. I washed 
your feet. I got on my hands and knees. I submitted myself to death on a cross for you. I humbled myself. What are you doing? Egocentric? Walking around thinking how big you are? I'm an important person in this church if you only knew. I have that problem. I work in academia. I work with a bunch of professors. We get titles after our names. We think those titles mean something. PhD program director. Somebody ought to pay attention to me. Right? I think that sometimes. You know what? That, that, that's a bunch of words strung together that means next to nothing. You know what I do as PhD program director? I send out emails to PhD students to tell them which classes they need to take. Yeah, I bet you could do that. I mean, you, know, you don't need a doctor to do this job. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That's egocentric worship. When I come to church with any indication at all, except to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ and to honor Jesus and to love him, I have missed the boat. I'm egocentric. Judas isn't the only one that's egocentric, though. The Pharisees are. They focus on their selfish desires, right? Can you believe that little Messiah guy? That little carpenter from Nazareth, illegitimate kid. That's what they thought of him, you know, because Mary hadn't had relations with her husband. So she must have done something outside of marriage that's not so nice. And so Jesus was one of those kind of kids. And you know, they're from the wrong side of the tracks, from Nazareth. Anything good come out of Nazareth. So the Pharisees are going around telling all this junk about Jesus. And they want to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because this illegitimate child, this carpenter from Nazareth, was attracting attention they couldn't get. And can I tell you the difference between the chief priests, the Pharisees, and Jesus? It's a simple difference. They doctrinally, they believe the same stuff. That may shock you, but the Pharisees agree with Jesus. In fact, they often call Jesus rabbi, which is a title, it's an honorary doctorate, rabbi, teacher. They respected Jesus in lots of ways. The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was this. Jesus had the power of God. The Pharisees didn't. And you know why Jesus had the power of God? I'll tell you why. Philippians 2 says this in the end. Because he humbled himself to the point of death, God raised him up. He had the power of God's presence because of his humility. For Jesus, it wasn't about Jesus. Garden of Gethsemane. You remember this story? He's sitting there praying. What does Jesus do? Dear Lord, if there's, a point, if there's an option B, I'm signing on. You know, but, but not my will, but yours be done. Okay. Now, I just want to point out something specific theologically here. If there was no choice then Jesus' prayer was a lie because he asked his father for an option. And if there's no option, then he was just pretending because he knew there really wasn't. Just put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Apparently, Jesus could have walked away. Apparently, Jesus could have said, no, thank you. Dying for the sins of everybody else doesn't sound very appetizing to me today. I think I'll avoid it. But Philippians 2, he humbled himself. That's the difference. You want the power of God in your church? You want the power of God in this place? You want the power of God to literally inundate Rocky Mount with God? You've got to start with humility. If there's anybody in this community that is beneath you, you are not humble. Because as soon as you start thinking of people as being beneath you, you have forgotten something very important. We are all beneath at the foot of the cross. There is nothing but beneath at the cross. Jesus' feet are always above us at the cross. And the day I think that there's a sinner out there 
Pick one. An Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, or pick your favorite or least favorite politician inserting me here. I don't care. The day I think that person can't be saved is the day I am lost. What do I have to offer God? Egocentrism, selfishness, sin. Egocentric worship wants to know what's in it for me. Egocentric worship smells like semester-old sweat socks. Used sweat socks. Anybody who's ever been in high school or played football or played a sport knows what used sweat socks smells like. And you know that when God smells egocentric worship, he doesn't get excited. He gets nauseous. Right? We're on the same page here. Egocentric worship is in it for itself. So what does your worship smell like? Are you in it only for the selfish gain? Are you in it for what you can get out of it? Are you in it for the recognition, the applause? I remember thinking one day, I was, should finish my doctor's degree, Ph.D., the ultimate goal of academia. You can't go any higher unless you just get another one. And I have colleagues who have, by the way, so apparently you can't do that. Uh, my wife told me if I like living, I won't do another doctor. Uh, just saying, being honest. We have a submitted household. I submit to whatever she tells me. Um, <laughs> I wish she was here to hear that. She'd really appreciate it. I got out of my doctoral studies. And the, the, the place I worked for had some issues. I stood up against those issues and I said, these are wrong. This is wrong. I went as high as I could go telling people, this is wrong. I blew the whistle. I blew the whistle. And over and over again, every time I blew the whistle, people would warn me, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. Guess what? The people I worked for rewarded me by giving me a, a wonderful offer. You can resign today or we'll fire you. Had a wife, two children. My wife has multiple sclerosis. I am the only breadwinner, the only person bringing any money, and I have an option of resigning my job or losing it. So I said, fine, I resign. I can't work for you people anyway. Wrote my letter of resignation, called my wife, said, bring the truck over. She said, well, I said, I'm loaded up. I'm taking my stuff home. I'm done. During lunch break while everybody else was out, I literally moved out of the office. I actually got emails and phone calls from people saying, we came back from lunch and you were gone. What happened? I said, I quit. That's what happened. For a month, I had no job. God opened the door for me to t- uh, manage a Christian bookstore. A friend of mine had a, uh, the world's largest Christian bookstore at the time, Compass Christian Superstore. I went to manage this bookstore for him. He, he provided me a nice salary. Things were going pretty good, but I wasn't where I wanted to be. I have a PhD. I ought to be in the classroom teaching. That's what my call is. And so I'm crying out to God one day. I'm putting Bibles on the shelf. That's what you do at a Christian bookstore, in case you're wondering. You know, we don't just stand around and sing hymns all day. Um, so we're putting, books, putting Bibles on the shelf, and I'm angry. God, I ought to be teaching the Bible. Here I am, shelving Bibles. I can translate the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, giving God. You ever given God that? It's okay, because if you read the Psalms, apparently God can take it. So don't worry about it, okay? So I'm giving God the business. And God says to me these words. I'm sorry. Perhaps I misunderstood. But it seems to me like, A couple of decades ago, when you surrendered your life to me, the words you used were, I'll do anything and go anywhere you want me to go. I hate it when God brings up old conversations because his memory is better than mine, right? You know, he just, he know it all. Um, So there he is convicting me, my own words. 
I'm shelving Bibles. I'm still mad. Yeah, but I didn't, you know, this, I'm going backwards. I'm not going forwards. This is wrong. God, I can't even pay for insurance for my wife. Things are going bad, and I don't understand, and, and I'm mad, and I'm crying. And all of a sudden, the song starts playing over our loudspeakers. Running with the Lord in the fields of grace. And I started thinking about all the things God had done for me. I thought about Jesus hanging on that cross. Two wooden nails stuck in his wrists. A wooden nail through his ankles. Hanging there suffocating, beaten to a bloody mess by Roman soldiers. A nail, a crown of thorns on his head. Every time he would let his weight go down, his arms would be in excruciating pain. He would start, his lungs would fill up with fluid as he started drowning in his own fluids. And if he pushed up on his ankles to try to get some break and some relief and to get some oxygen into his lungs, his the pain shooting up through his legs would be so bad, it would shoot up his spinal cord to his brain and he would cry out in agonizing pain. And he's hanging there for one reason and one reason only. And I want you to understand this reason. He's hanging there because he loves you. That's it. Now I'm sitting there thinking, i got a hard way to go because i got to shelf Bibles. But at least I haven't been asked to be hung on a cross. You got it? And so I'm sitting there convicted, and I get on my knees. It's a good thing it's a Christian bookstore, right? Because people wouldn't be surprised, hopefully. I get on my knees, and I'm crying. My tears are dripping on the wood floor beneath me. And I said, God, I'm wrong. I told you anywhere. I told you anyhow I would serve you. And here I am, an arrogant, egocentric person wanting my benefit, not yours. And I said, God, I'll stay. I will do. I will be whatever I need to be for Jesus to be honored. I wish I could say the very next day Jerry Falwell called. It's not how it worked. Two years later, I was teaching in a community college and running the bookstore. God said to me, I'm standing on the front porch of my house, crying out to God. What's next, God? What can I do? How can I honor you? Where can I go from here? Lord, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to be all about you. I want to strip away all the crap out of my heart and make it all about you. And God said these words, can you be content? to work in a community college and manage a bookstore and love me for the rest of your life. And I looked up to heaven and as honest as I could, I said, yes. Yes. I'm content to be in Waco, Texas for the rest of eternity until Jesus comes, if that's where you need me. A week later, I get a phone call from Liberty University. I submitted an application. They wanted me to come teach. I actually fought going to Liberty I went to the community college and I told them, look, here's what you need to know. I'm willing to stay here. If you can pay me what Liberty's going to pay me, I'll stay right here and I'll teach full time for you. I'll, I'll manage the bookstore. I told them, the guy that owned the bookstore, I said, if you can pay me the salary that Liberty's offering me, I'll stay right here. Because I told God, I'd stay in Waco. And as I prayed and as I thought through it and as I worked through it, the boss, the, my friend that owned the bookstore came to me one day. He said, Leo, you're called to teach. And even if I thought I could pay you, I would not. Because God wants you. To go. The community college got back with me and they said, we're not hiring any full-time profs at the moment. We appreciate your work for us. Thank you for what you've done. And I packed my family and moved the 1,400 miles from Waco, Texas to Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to come through for you in every time, every way like that. For all I know, I could still have been in Waco, Texas, working with the pastors and the ministers of that city. But once I learned that it's not about me, 
my focus changed. Let's talk a little about extravagant worship in closing. Our time's getting away from us, but I promise I'm almost done. Any of you here familiar with O. Henry, the author, the story, The Gift of the Magi? Anybody here went to high school? Uh, right? Did you have to read this story? We had to read it in high school. In fact, I, when I was in high school, I was dating a girl, and she had really long, long hair. And uh, she, star, she played the starring, one of the starring roles in a, a play of The Gift of the Magi. And if you know the story, you already know where that's going, right? Yeah, she cut her hair. The story is of a married couple who give up what is the most precious in order to show extravagant love to each other. In the story, there's a young couple named Della and Jim. They're a poor couple, but they loved each other deeply. Each one had their own unique possession. Della's hair was her pride and joy. Her husband used to get great joy. This was their entertainment because this is all they could afford. They would sit there and he would comb her hair and they would enjoy each other's presence. When she let her hair down, it was like a robe on her back. Jim had a gold watch, which his father had given him. It was his pride and joy. On the day before Christmas, Della had exactly $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She wanted to get him something that he would really like, but she knew that she could not get much for $1.87. This was back before Dollar Tree existed. (laughs) So she went and sold her hair. Cut her hair off short and sold it for $20. And with that money, she bought a platinum chain for Jim's gold watch. Jim came home from work that night. And he saw Della's hair gone. He got tears in his eyes. He was left speechless. Slowly, he reached in his pocket and pulled out a gift and handed it to her. His gift was a set of expensive turquoise shell combs with jeweled edges to comb her hair. He had sold his gold watch to buy something precious for his wife. Each had given everything they had to show love. That's what Mary did. Mary shows extravagant worship here. It's precious. It cost Mary almost a year's worth of money. We know this, Judas tells us, right? 300 denarii, a year's salary. Now, I looked it up. Um, the average teacher salary, high school teacher salary in Virginia, and this is including all of Virginia, not just your area, so if you don't get paid this much, don't yell at me, okay? Uh, I'm just saying. The average salary was $47,000. I looked it up. Now, that's average, so if you're starting out, you're not getting that, and if you've been in for a while, you're probably getting more. $47,000. Now, imagine spending $47,000 to dump on somebody's feet. Right? I know what you're already thinking. Dude, what a waste. I mean, you know, we could have done something else. We could have bought a car, two cars, you know, driven around all over the place. A year's salary. Mary must have been saving this stuff. She saved up money for a long time to buy this stuff. She may have been saving it for Lazarus burial, maybe for her own. This was precious nard. It wasn't usually used to wash dirty fishermen's feet. It was used to bury loved ones. Her worship, secondly, was motivated by love, and it was intimate. What you may not know about the first century is, in the, in the first century context, a woman would never let her hair out of her veil, would never let her hair down in front of anybody except her immediate family or her husband. It was just unheard of. So here comes Mary in front of a bunch of guests at a Thanksgiving meal, and she lets her hair down in front of them all. That's an intimate act. It's, it's precious. She anoints Jesus' feet. 
Now, again, remember, these guys are kind of laying on their sides at the table. So she had to get down on her hands and knees. She had to pour the stuff on her feet. And then it tells us she wiped her feet with her hair. So guess what that means? She laid down on the dirt floor of this house, wrapped her hair around these dirty carpenter's feet, and wiped his feet off with her hair. The people in the crowd were no doubt astounded. Back then, they didn't have window panes so that people could smell the perfume as it wafted through the room. And they were no doubt astounded. They, they looked through the window and go, what in the world is she doing? She's laying on the floor. Her hair is unbound. Holy cow, call the cops. This is wrong. This is intimate. We shouldn't even be allowed to see this. What is she doing? Because it was precious. It was intimate. But it's also humble. Notice she's on her face. On the floor. It's not about Mary. It's about Jesus. She doesn't care what the crowd outside thinks. She doesn't care what the Pharisees' chief priests think. She doesn't care what Judas thinks. Judas can have his money. What she cares about is she has heard her Savior say, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. And she's anointing him for his burial. She served Jesus. In another story, at another meal, Jesus is eating with a Pharisee. Another woman comes in to anoint his feet. And she's uh, one of those women from the other side of the tracks that you don't want to hang out with, that your mama warned you about. And she anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and kisses his dirty feet and wipes them dry. And the Pharisee sitting there at his table and he thinks to himself, if this guy knew what kind of person that was, he wouldn't let her titch his feet, much less come into the room. And Jesus looks at this Pharisee and he says, Who loves the most? The person who's been forgiven a lot? Or the person who hasn't sinned much and been forgiven much? And the Pharisee said, Well, I, you know, it seems logical to me that the person who's forgiven of a lot would love more. And he said, Well, I walked into your house about an hour ago. You didn't offer me a pitcher of water for my feet or oil of ointment for my head. And since, I, since this woman has come in, she's done nothing but anoint my feet. She knows what love really is. The Pharisee was not a happy camper after that. Extravagant worship. It's humble. It's obvious. And it's pleasant to others. The smell remained on Mary for a while. Now, back then, you didn't have showers in your houses. Taking a bath was, was not a, 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 even a daily ritual or a weekly ritual, maybe a monthly ritual if you got lucky because water was precious in the Middle East. So she would have the smell of this nard on her hair. Every time she walked past somebody, somebody would think a funeral procession was going by because she'd have this nard smell in her hair. But it permeated everywhere she went. She went to the store, they smelled it. She went to the market, they smelled it. She went to synagogue, they smelled it. She went to the temple, they smelled it. Everywhere she went... It permeated everything. It permeated the room, overpowering the smell of turkey, overpowering the smell of the gravy and the mashed potatoes and the pumpkin pie and the stuffing. All the guests smelled it. It stayed on Jesus. Right? Another account of the story, she actually pours the ointment over his head and it runs down and it gets in his clothes. Philip Keller says this, The delicious fragrance ran down over his shining hair. It enfolded his body with its delightful aroma. Even his tunic and flowing undergarments were drenched with its enduring pugnancy. Wherever he moved during the ensuing days, the perfume would go with him. Into the Passover, into the Garden of Gethsemane, into Herod's Hall, into Pilate's patio. Even into the cruel hands of those who would cast lots for his clothing and beat him senseless. 
Can you imagine as they're casting lots for this garment? It smells like nard. It's a burial cloth. Everywhere Jesus went for the next week of Passover, everywhere Jesus went to the crucifixion, he smelled it. It smelled with, it's, it's, it remained on him through the Last Supper, through the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, through his trial, through his beating and his crucifixion. This kind of worship permeates everything. Can I just tell you that I want the love of God to permeate me so much that when I walk into Walmart, people pay attention. Not because I'm the best dressed guy in there, not because I'm the smartest guy in there, not because I'm even the handsomest guy. None of those things count anyway, and none of them are true. But because all of a sudden there's something of Jesus oozing out of permeating from me, flowing off of me. I walk in, the greeter smells it. Well, there's something different with this guy. The person that helps me at the cash register, they get it. I want the person even that I bump into in the aisle that, you know, has their basket crossway so you can't go through. You know those guys, right? I want him to get it. And here's why. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2. The smell of Jesus is on us. And it's a smell of life to those who are getting life, but a smell of death to those who are getting death. And I want the smell of Jesus to be so much a part of me that it permeates everything I do. I want my kids to get it. I want it to rub off on them. I want it to rub off on my neighbors. I want it to rub off on my car. I want it to rub off on my house. I want it to rub off on everything so that wherever I go, I'm consistently reminded of what He did for me. Because that will keep me out of egocentric worship. Extravagant worship pleases Jesus. And it smells like a very expensive perfume. So what does your worship smell like? Are you extravagant? Do you serve others? Are you intimately involved in the lives of other people? Are you intimately involved with God? Does your worship overwhelm the place with a sweet fragrance that lingers? Let me tell you one, one last story, and then I promise I'm done. There's a little boy in the hills of Tennessee. A friend of mine tells this story, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true. I wasn't there, but Michael Hensley tells this story, and I, I have no reason to doubt him. The little boy grew up in the Appalachian Mountains, in a little trailer. One day, this pastor happened by his trailer, knocked on the door, and the boy came to the door. man asked to see, talk to his parents. said, well, they're not here. Every Saturday morning, parents leave, leave me and my brother here, and they go do something, and then we, we take care of ourselves for two days. The pastor's appalled at this. He says, well, what can I do to help? And the young man says, oh, we do all right. We're doing fine. We don't need help. So the pastor said, well, I have a gift I want to give you. The pastor shared the message of Jesus, the message I just shared about the crucifixion, about Jesus' death for our sins and the resurrection to sanctify and seal us. The young man with tears in his eyes said, you know what? I want that. I want that gift. So the pastor said, you can have it. Put faith in Christ. What Christ has done is yours. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. All of you. It's obviously free. It's available today. Jesus is calling. He's here. He's saying, it's yours. Take it. Take it. I love you enough, I'm giving it. It's out there. It's free. The young man said, I'll take it. The pastor said, I'm going to come by tomorrow. I'm going to pick up your brother and you, and I'm going to take you to church. You ever been to church? The boy said, I, have, I know what a church looks like, but I've never been in one. I'll be happy to go to church. So they go to church, sitting in pews, maybe something like this, in a country church in East Tennessee. These men come forward, and they grab these plates, and they start passing them around. Now imagine you've never been to church before. What are they doing? People are putting money in the plate. The young man finally figures it out. Oh, people are giving stuff to Jesus. So he's a new Christian, so he reaches in his pockets, and he tries to find something. All he has, he's got a bottle of lint and maybe a marble or two. 
He doesn't have any money to give to Jesus. And the plate passes him with tears in his eye. He passes the plate on. And he sits there for a moment. Tears running down his cheek. When all of a sudden a light bulb goes off in his head. And he runs back to the back where the deacons were standing with the plates. And he runs up to one of the deacons. He grabs him by the coat. He says, Mr. Mr., can I have that plate again for just a minute? Just one second. I got something I want to give Jesus. The deacon shrugs his shoulder. I don't know what the kid wants. Hands him the plate. Sets the plate on the floor and stands in it. He says, Jesus, I ain't got nothing. But I give you me. That's what I'm asking of you today. I'm not asking you to give all your worldly wealth. I'm asking you to give Jesus you. He doesn't need your wealth. He doesn't need your car. He doesn't need your family. He wants you. What does your worship smell like? This week, I'm going to give you some things you can do. For those of you who are Christians, this is your homework. For those of you who aren't Christians, I'd love to share the gospel story with you. I'd love to be the midwife that helps bring you into new birth. And this morning, I'll be right down here in a few minutes. If you want to make a decision for Christ, come. And I'll, I'll tell you more about the story. It's, a very, it's my favorite story to tell. I'll be happy to share it with you. But for those of you who are already Christians, you need to hear this. First, stop counting the cost. Give Jesus the best you got. I gave him 10% when the plate came by. I don't care. Give him your best. What's your best? I tell my PhD students this all the time. I'm not looking for doctoral students who are the most talented in the world. I'm not looking for guys who automatically wow me. I'm looking for guys who give their best to serve Jesus because that's the kind of guys I want to put in classrooms because if they're in classrooms, they'll change hearts, minds, and lives, and souls. And that's what matters. Give your best. Waste some time. You know, Mary didn't take this nard, stick her finger in it and go, that'll do, Jesus. I hope you're ready for your burial now. (laughs) She broke it open. She wasted it on him. Waste some time serving God this week. Pick one hour out of your schedule. I know you can do it. Take a lunch break. Pick one hour out of your schedule. Spend it only in service to God. Spend it in service to others. Do something to someone who can't pay you back. Don't scrimp. Waste some money that you've been saving. Spend it on Jesus. My wife and I, when we first did this lesson together, took our vacation fund. And gave it to a young lady who was working with Muslim, abused Muslim women in Turkmenistan. Whose husbands had beat them. They had nowhere to go. We decided sending them on a vacation was a better choice than taking one. Help someone and do it with no boundaries, no limits. Second, learn to let your worship permeate your life and your circumstances. Don't stop with private worship. What happens in this room is fine and great and wonderful and dandy. Bless the Lord for it. But more important than what happens in this room is what happens outside. And if we don't go out these doors and are, 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 are living extravagant worship in public, nobody will ever know. How hard is my heart that I won't tell somebody how much Jesus loves them? How hard is my heart that I won't share the message of life? Be bold in sharing your love for Christ. Find someone that needs encouragement or someone who needs salvation or someone who just needs a friend and spend some time dumping love on them in an extravagant measure. I already noted that Paul says that Christians are permeated with a smell. What does your smell say to the world around you? What does your worship smell like? Let's pray. Lord, I confess as a man of poor intentions that my worship sometimes stinks in your nostrils. I have no doubt that a lot of what I do is done from egocentric desires or hope that somehow I will be blessed for it. So Lord, I confess before my brothers and sisters, 
I don't want that kind of worship in my life anymore. I want to be extravagant in worshiping you. I want to be obsessed with Jesus, overwhelmed with Jesus, controlled by Jesus. So, Lord, I open the door this morning. These people have been very patient and kind to listen to the ramblings of this man. But I pray that your word, as we've already sung, that your word would impact our hearts, roll down from heaven, and do what it was called to do. Change our lives, change our hearts, change our minds, and point us to Jesus. And Lord, I pray, if there's a soul here today that doesn't know you, that this would be the day of new birth. And for those souls who are struggling to love you, who've made a commitment but don't know how to act on it, because they've been wounded, they've been bruised, they've been injured. Today, Lord, bring healing, bring health. Bless us, Lord, with your love so that we can dump our nard of worship on you. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'm going to be right down here. I'm going to give just a couple of minutes of invitation. Don't feel obliged. There's no pressure here. I love to pray for people. If you just need prayer, please let me know. My wife and I, it's a pleasure for us to put people, we will now have your church. Certainly your pastor was already on my list, but we'll now have your church on our list. If you need prayer for any reason, if you would like to know more about how you too can become a follower of Christ, I'm here and it's open. extending invitations beyond what is necessary. Uh, number one, I've already kept you late, and the Methodists have already beat you to the restaurant, so I'm a, I need to get you out of here. Uh, number two, God knows your heart, and, and I, I want you to know with all due love and respect, I, I am not here as a person telling you what you need to do. I'm here as a fellow traveler on the pathway of grace, and I am, I am offering to you, with all the love I can muster from Jesus, any help I can give you to help you further down that trail. I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to cajole you. In fact, I'm not even going to talk anymore, except to tell you that if you get bitten by the bug that bit me, it will change you forever. Because when death stung Jesus, death stung itself to death. There is nothing left for me but Christ. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here today.